that. Appreciate so much all you've done for me over the years. Words can't ex- explain that. Many of you are new and may not know who I am. That's all right. A lot of people who know me don't know who I am. <laughs> My name is Doug, Doug Folk. My wife is Jones. She's sitting over there. And I preach at a small congregation in Wharton, New Jersey, west of here, off of Route 80, off of Route 15. But we meet there from 3 to 5 in the afternoon. So oftentimes we visit here, sometimes at Fairlawn, sometimes at Washington or elsewhere in the, for our morning services, and then uh, migrate to Wharton to be there at 3. And this afternoon I will be preaching in Fairlawn at 3.30 to the Hispanic brethren there. And so uh, we have a busy uh, Sunday schedule, as do most of you also, but I am so grateful for this opportunity to be here to speak to you. When I was asked to do this, see if I can get this thing working, it's a little sluggish. I love technology. It's coming. On there you go. There you are. When, uh, (laughs) that's really a one step away when I was invited to speak, immediately I started thinking of topics that might be beneficial to you all. And of course, your theme, when, when Mike, Michael, about three weeks ago, preached on the mountain climber, do you remember that sermon, Mount, climbing the mountain? And uh, I, I had already figured on this sermon, because that's what your theme is, getting to the top, getting to closer to God. He is holy. We want to be like that, too. But the journey sometimes starts because of fear and needs to migrate to love. Now, we will see that today. And this is part of a, a one-part lesson that I was teaching in some meetings before. So I've modified this one. There will only be three slides, I think there are, to this one. And then I'll turn it off. And I want you to see the rest of this from your own Bibles. I want you to see it for yourself and read it. It's, to me, almost unbelievable what, how God reveals himself so intimately that you may not have considered that. And I thought maybe that would be helpful. Proverbs 1, we know about Proverbs 1, 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's actually uh, a word there that means the chief part or the head of knowledge It's where oftentimes knowledge then starts because it leads to other things. On the other hand, if you go to 1 John 4, and I want to spend some time with this passage to just look at this passage itself, and we will be going there. Uh, So you may take your Bibles out and read it here, but it will be up on the screen. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Where do we want to go with this? We want to arrive at perfect love, and so we'll be looking at some of those. Also, on the other hand, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Well, that's taken from the the law of Moses. And he says that's the first and greatest commandment. So we have... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or the chief part of knowledge, where knowledge of God starts. But knowledge of God is only a tool to get us further along, to get to know God, know who He is, what He has done for us, and what He wants of us. And so these other things are here. 
So I want to look at this, first of all, from the, the word fear is phobos, and, uh, and phobeo in the, as, a, as a noun, and you can see what that is. We have a, a phobia, right? A fear of something. Well, in our language, we use that many different ways, fear, the word, English word fear. And so do they in the Greek and in the Hebrew, use it in different ways. We might say, I am really afraid of bears. I'm afraid of uh, other things. I'm afraid of heights, if you're looking from the mountain climber. Uh, somebody who's a, afraid of heights might not be a, make a good mountain climber. Uh, and certainly lots of people don't even want to go over bridges because of that kind of fear. But then there's the other way we look at this a lot of times. Well, you know how you try to put something together that's a little delicate and has a screw, and you're screwing on it, and you want to make it a little tight, and all of a hint, it breaks. And you say, I was afraid that was going to happen. It's the same word. Like, I was afraid. We're not really scared that it was going to happen unless, you know, we're going to blow up or something. But we're not, we're not afraid that way. And that word is used like that also. Uh, and it's also used for... Uh, to make you respect and stuff. But I want to look at how it's used here in 1 John 4.18. There are three elements contained in this. Love, fear, and punishment. And they're arranged in a structure that's kind of like an arch. Now, if you remember some of the classes I taught before, if you remember when, you were, when I was teaching those, we looked at the way Scripture is structured sometimes. But not just Scripture, language itself is structured in a way sometimes to help us remember things. And uh, there's, a, there's a, one kind of a technique, I guess you could say, call it in, in literature, called the chiasm or chiasm. You don't have to know that. But it starts one way and works its way backwards. So it's a common technique of language, uh, whether written or spoken. So he that exalts himself shall be humbled, he that humbles himself shall be exalted. A, B, B, A. Or, um, the Sabbath was not made for man, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. The other way around. And so, in music, musical forms have a, a more precise way of looking at those, and it's called a mirror form. But when there is an uneven element in it, and where it goes like A, B, C, and the C doesn't repeat itself, it went A, B, C, C, B, A, that would be a mirror form. But when it goes A, B, C, B, A, and works its way backwards, then the C, the keystone of that arch, becomes an important part of the entire structure of the piece. And if in language, in the book of John, especially 1 John, he uses this technique a lot. It really is helpful for you to know that keystone for it. And if I, one more thing, if I were to ask you, those older, maybe, who remember <laughs> the days of John F. Kennedy, and I was asking you, what, what saying do you remember maybe the most that you uh, best can remember that something JFK said? It might be, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. A chiasm, or a mirror form. See how that is? And those are there so that people will remember those things, or they're catchy, so to speak. And so is this. This, uh, this is, is a, uh, a, oh, I call it a, an arch form, though. 
centered around these three things. Here's how it works. The love is the two A's. The fear is the two B. And punishment is the top of that arch, the keystone that helps us define what kind of fear he's talking about. It's the fear that involves punishment. The fear of punishment. That's being afraid. The fear of getting out of line and having God punish us or the fear of going to hell ultimately. Now I think every one of us uh, at times goes through different stages of that. And you will recognize that it's something that uh, maybe we all have in one way or another uh, because what happens beyond this life is not known. Nobody comes back to tell us you have these strange reports, but they're contradictory. There are no ways to know. And so what we have here on the first part of this, is, this is why it, it, it makes sense. Love is perfected. Okay, there's, there's no fear in love. That's the introduction. For perfect love casts out fear. So on that side of the, of the coin there, love is perfected. And it casts out fear. And there is no fear there. And then you have punishment, but then it turns around the other way. But he and he who fears, and that's fear not cast out, uh, is not, has not been perfected in love. And love not perfected. So you see how that works up there? There are a lot of places in, in this uh, book I would like to show you and talk to you about that would help you understand some difficult passages. But when you understand the structure of it, it will help you understand the meaning of it sometimes. So we have here a kind of an arch in that case. We know that fear then means being afraid. It's that kind of fear. It's not a respect kind of fear. It's not that, oh, I'm afraid I might go to hell. It's, I'm really kind of terrified of it. Fear and respect are different, but in the Bible they are often seen to go together, either in their meanings or actually said together. But they're different because you can have fear without respect. You can be afraid of a dictator or a terrible man who has power like Hitler or Stalin, but you have no respect for that person. On the other hand, you can have respect without fear. The person's character, you respect that person for his integrity, his honesty, his fidelity, his knowledge, or, or, or his any number of things that have to do with a character, his or her, and a great respect for her or for him. But we're not afraid of him. So you see that difference being separated. But when fear and respect fit together, then the respect tempers fear. All right, so let's just look at this, the thing about with the mountain climber that we looked at. I, I got this because I like the part that that Michael got to. If you remember, he had several rules of mountain climbing, you know, you've got to get ready, you have to be focused on this, and one of them is fear stinks. <laughs> yeah, if, if you try, if, you're, if you live in fear of falling and dying, you're probably not going to, you're going to go so far and turn around and go back. You're not going to make it. And it inhibits you from reaching the goal. And God knows this about us, and he is giving us a solution so that we don't have to be afraid of him if we get to know him. There's that respect. Even the mountain climbers climbing up the mountain, they know what can happen. 
And you talk to a mountain climber or you hear them on TV and they say they respect the mountain. And also like an electrician, for example. Uh, I used to work around electricians a lot in my home when I was in the, operated a home improvement business a uh, few, few years ago. <laughs> in Tallahassee, Florida. But they would say uh, that they don't fear electricity. They're not afraid of it, but they respect it. Now, why? what's the difference? A lot of people say, man, I don't want to work on that. Nobody would, only somebody not really thinking would try to replace a light switch without turning off the breaker. Electrician might know how to do that. And I've seen them do that. Because they understand electricity. It's the understanding of the object of their fear that makes them respect the object and its power and recognize that that power is there if not handled correctly to kill you. But on the other hand, if you know it and you know how to handle that, then you feel safe because electricity is relatively consistent and will behave in a predictable pattern. And that's the way God is, too. He is very predictable. He is dependable above all else. If he says something, he means it. But sometimes, because of our own, I think, maybe lack of understanding of sin and our own selves, and our, uh, that, that uh, we, we don't maybe doubt God's uh, grace and love, but we doubt our own worthiness. Wouldn't that be so? Man, I'm just, I just can't imagine God doing this for me. We even sing a song, Is it for me, dear Savior, like glory in the event. But you don't have to be completely familiar with that. What counts is to be familiar with God. Now, I want to make a couple of observations first about this. First of all, perfect love is attainable because if it weren't, God would not be expecting it of his people. This is not just a little teeny law. This is the chief of laws. This, on this hangs all the law and the prophets, as well as love your neighbor as yourself. This is the major concern for God. He wants his people to love him. And he knows he can't command it. It's written as a command. You shall love the Lord your God. But it isn't that way. He, when he wrote that, when he said that, he didn't say, like, you better love me, because he can't do that. Love has to be freely given. But it does explain how important this is to God. And he would not expect of his people a goal, to achieve a goal which is unattainable. So that is something about God that you can look to. And you can say, if he says I should do this, I can do it. And that's important because that way you're not focused on yourself so much. You're focused on the object of your affection, of where you want to go. You're focused on God. 1 John 4.18 does not say it is wrong to fear judgment. If you're afraid of going to hell, that's not necessarily a bad thing, as long as you can get by it. But the Philippian jailer, remember him? In Acts chapter 16, uh, he knew that he knew that Paul and Silas had thrown in there for preaching something. The, even the the, uh, the woman with the spirit of divination says these men are are preaching uh, a, a a way of salvation. So when the earthquake happened and their their 
doors of the prison were open for all the prisoners there. And when it wasn't just your normal earthquake, because the, 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 the handcuffs, the chains were unlocked, and the, and the chains on the feet were unlocked, that doesn't happen in an earthquake. He was terrified. Trembling with fear, it says, he came and said, what must I do to be saved? And he was saved. They taught him about Jesus. They preached the gospel to him, and he obeyed the gospel. What's interesting there, he didn't obey the gospel until he had taken care of their injuries, which already shows a love of a brother, potential brother in the future, a love at least of a neighbor. That man was a good man. It also, on the other hand, Felix. Remember when Paul was talking to Felix, speaking to him of, uh, things concerning righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix trembled, said. That means he believed. You're, you're not scared of something you don't believe is going to happen. He trembled. But he says, go your way when it's more convenient. I'll listen to more. Well, it, he never got to hear more. He was replaced eventually. He, and it was too late for him. First John 4.18 does not say that if you're afraid of going to hell, that's where you're going. This epistle was written to, to Christians who had doubts about their own salvation. I don't know if you know that. It's a great epistle to read. If you have doubts about your salvation, this is a great epistle to read. Look what he says in chapter 5. And actually gives his purpose for writing these things similar to what he says in the first chapter. But verse 3 of 13, John 5, 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Meaning, they didn't know. There were things they didn't know. Information that they lacked. Confusion about other religious doctrines going out there. And people saying, no, you're not doing this right. You need to be doing it this way. And confusion can lead to uncertainty about a person's own standing with God. But this fixes that. 1 John 4.18 does say that if you're afraid of judgment, you are not perfected in love. Yeah. Now that's where this PowerPoint ends, and I'm going to ask you to open up your Bible, because I found something over the years, that is the most powerful um, motivator to learn how to love God. And I'm not telling you I've got a handle on it. I'm not telling you I've, I've reached that yet or not. But, uh, but I know where the, where the answer lies. And in the time remaining, I want to deal with that answer. There's a lot of other things I would like to say. But turn to Deuteronomy 32. Now, you wouldn't expect to get your answer out of the Old Testament. You would want to turn, you think, to Christ and his, his um, sacrifice and mediation and propitiation and all those things that uh, are important and crucial to us. But I want to focus on God's heart. I want us to try to try if we can, as best we can, to try to think like God thinks about his people. This is the song of Moses. You know, we always sing, sing a song of Moses and the lamb by and by. Or who knows what that is, but here it is. It's the song of Moses right there. 
song that he taught Israel. And uh, you can see that from the closing verses of 32, uh, 31, rather. But I want to look at verses 14, uh, and, and, well, I'll start in verse 4, rather. And notice again a similar kind of structure that helps us frame what God is saying. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. You may have the word right there or something. But that uh, when it says that righteous and upright is he, it's, it's not just the word right. It's the word means plumb. Like, like you put something up and it's straight up. It doesn't go this way or that way or this way or that way. It's standing true. It's standing upright. And that word is yasher. You don't have to know that, but I will show you later how that is turned around. So what do we have? We have the rock, we have God, and we have upright. Those three words there. That describes the character of God, and that's the way he wants his people to be. But the first people that he created, Israel, at the covenant sealing, at the sealing of the covenant in Exodus 24, deserted him. Verse 15 is this word, Jeshurun, and that comes from the same word, Yashur, which means upright. So it means he has named in his heart his people the upright ones. Or actually it's the singular. The nation is the upright one. Now, we're going to see how he describes it from his viewpoint. What he was thinking when he created this nation and what then the nation actually became. And so in verse 15, those three elements of rock, God, and upright are turned around. First of all, Jeshurun is supposed to be the upright one, but he grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and slick, and sleek. I think sometimes, someone said once, on the fabric of a nation, luxury is more brutal than war. Now, when they were having problems in their first century, Christians were having with their persecutions and stuff, you knew who, where you stood in some ways. But we are in the lap of luxury, and that's what happened to them. Knew what was going to happen too was going to get worse. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. See, just the opposite. Rock God and upright, upright God, rock. Turned around the other way. Whatever was true on this side of that mirror form is not true on, on this side. That's how that works. So let's go to verse 5. This is difficult to translate, so your, your translation may, meet, uh, may read differently, but that's okay. The, the sense of it is still the same. They, his people, acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Remember how that was uh, preached, save yourself from this perverse and crooked generation. 
But look at verse 6. I'd like you to look at this now, not from the standpoint simply of God's anger, but of his heartbreak. You can see the language used is that God is not just angry by the behavior of his people. He is hurt by it because of how much he loves them. You can't be hurt by somebody you don't love, you know, but, you know, that when, it, when it turns that way, it's a tragic thing. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Do all the things that I've done for you, is this how you repay me? Does that sound just like anger? You see what I mean? After all I've done... Have you ever had somebody like that? After all I've done for you, you do this to me. It's a common experience of life. And it's a common experience with God and the Israel of old. Then he says, is he not your father? Man, father, the guy... The one who loves, the one who guides the family, who is supposed to be the leader of that and the leader of spiritual love as well. He has made you and established you. Now the remedy to this is the remedy always given in Scripture. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you your elders, and they will tell you. Remember. Revelation chapter 2, where he talks to the Ephesian brethren, the church there, he says, remember from where you have fallen and do the things at the first. Same as in the book of Hebrews. Remember before when you did this and this. That's the key to getting back to God and God's graces. Remember the way it was. You remember your conversion? Do you remember the day you were united with Christ in baptism? Romans 6, you were buried with him. Galatians 3, 26 and 7, you wore his clothing. I remember the time. But I didn't understand it until it was pointed out to me. Joe Finney, James Finney's oldest son, like many of you know James, he got me to go to Florida College. We were in school together, Farrell High School, and uh, he got me an application. He got me recommendations that I didn't know about for much later, and they accepted me. I knew nothing about the scriptures when I went down there, but we had to have Bible classes in college every day. They were transferable as humanities, history, or electives. And um, I remember then when faith awakened in me and I saw the need that had to be, I needed to obey the gospel. I was determined to do it. But I said to Joe, as soon as we get back, and this we're going to get back up, we had a plane reservation. This was around Thanksgiving. And I said, as soon as we get back home, I'm going to have your father baptize me. I thought I was giving him a compliment. I thought it was honoring him. Honoring his father was my way of doing that. But he told me the exact thing he ought to do to have told me. If you know that's what you need to do, you don't want to wait. Because we might not get back home. 
And I never had been on an airplane before. <laughs> My first airplane. You know. So I got to thinking, well, I'll say that. The preacher preached that day. And his sermon, I didn't know this, that you could do this. Because in the Episcopal Church, you could never do this. Joe went to the preacher and said, I think Doug, Doug is ready to obey the gospel. Why don't you preach a sermon for him? <laughs> Looking back, I can see it now. He used a Paul on the, Saul on the road to Damascus. And he said, he, Paul says, when I, I obeyed the heavenly vision, I did not hesitate. He didn't consult with mom and dad. He didn't consult with the rabbis. He didn't consult with his priest or his former religion. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't consult with his girlfriend. He said that. <laughs> he didn't know I'd already broken up with my girlfriend. But still. <laughs> Joe didn't know that either, but he put that in there. And I went, I went forward that day and I was baptized into Christ. And when I got on that plane, 30,000 feet in the air, I thought, I'm not afraid. I don't care. If the plane crashes, I'll get to heaven sooner rather than later. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was thinking. That's how sure and certain I believe God and His salvation. But something happened after a while. I began to learn more about God and learn more about His righteousness and how far away from Him we are. But God, who said, all have fallen short of the glory of God, knows that about us. And he understands that about us. He wouldn't have put that in there if he didn't. It's not just that we need to think, man, I'll never attain to God's glory. He didn't put that there for that reason. He put that there so that you know that you know that God knows this about you. That he is far above and you know that. But he makes provisions for us. And notice this in verse 8. Uh, back to Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now, if that isn't confusing to you, well, you're pretty good then if you already know what that means. Look at that. When he separated the sons of man, the people of the world, he set their boundaries, the people of the, the boundaries of the people, according to the number of the sons of Israel. Well, there's no way that can be physical. You ever try to find Israel on a on a globe? It's hard. It's just a little speck. The nations are greater all around physically than Israel. Of all the nations, they're one of the tiniest. No, it can't be physical. It has to be spiritual in this sense that he regards them more highly above all the nation. And you know what he calls Israel? What he said to Moses? Do you remember that? Uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Israel is my firstborn. Because you did not let my firstborn go, I will destroy your firstborn. Now what's the advantage of his firstborn? A firstborn in the ancient system and the firstborn of, of uh, the sons got a double portion of the father's estate. So like if there were three sons, the firstborn would get half of the estate, the other two would get 25% of the estate. That's what it works, the double portion. That's what that means. And that's what the... So he 
gives Israel a double portion of his honor. He doesn't leave the rest of the nations out like some people think. He doesn't desert the rest of the nations. But he regards his people in a special way that cannot be said of any other nation. And in our closing comments, we'll see that's exactly what he thinks about his people today. A nation of firstborn ones. Now, here's the next thing that most people don't know. I sure didn't know for until relatively recent. Verse 9. Here's the reason that God did it. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Did you ever think that God has an inheritance? We know about the inheritance that he has given us, or we think we know. But this is his inheritance. God has preserved a heritage, an inheritance for himself. Who can give him anything? He gives himself this, his people. That's how important his people are to him. This is my precious heritage, his people. Now you can see why they deserted it, why God is, is uh, so disappointed. Nah, more than disappointed, but actually hurt. They rebelled against him. They said of the food that they were getting, we loathe this miserable food. Even after the 40 years wandering, they were still complaining, going back to Egypt. And he said, as for this, at this Miserably loathe this miserable food, the manna and the quail. Loathe it. Husband, what would happen if you said that to your wife? Man, I'm sick and tired of this miserable food. You would have dishes flying and you would have tears running. Because it's not just anger that touches your wife's heart. It's I mean, it's not just anger, it's sorrow as well. Frustration. This is what God is experiencing with his people. They broke his heart. Do you want to see some more about that? Let's go to, do, uh, to Jeremiah. Two passages here should, should do it. There are other passages that actually say that, that they shall know how they have hurt me. Well, let's go to Jeremiah chapter 2. This is on the eve of the destruction of Judah. Israel had already been destroyed, taken away. And notice what he says about his people now. And starting in verse uh, four, uh, 5. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me? And walk after emptiness and became empty. What did I do wrong? Can you tell me something I did? When we disappoint God, when we break his heart, he will say, what have I done wrong? What else could I do? So this would be the first key element about getting back and understanding the love of God. Above all, don't break his heart. Now they did a lot of things wrong. And they, a lot of them corrected themselves, and they were good for a while, and bad and good and that. But in this, he just was heartbroken. And he gave up on his own inheritance. Verse 6, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness 
through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and deep darkness. They didn't seek him. They didn't look for him. They didn't try to find out who he was, what he wanted. So how could they love him? In Jeremiah chapter 12, then it got so bad that God has forsaken his own inheritance. What he says. Verse 7, Jeremiah 12. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given. I have given the beloved of my soul <coughs> to her enemies. Wow. The beloved. She who was once above beloved. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. His hatred for them now is stronger than his love for them before. But you know what he did? He determined, just like Saul, to seek a nation after his own heart. And he would form a new nation, not of birth physically, and not by physical means, but spiritual birth. A spiritual nation. And the prophets are full of that all over, and I can't go into that. But I want to go in now to the book of Ephesians, just so you can see that God has extended to this new nation promises that far exceed what Israel could get. They had the land, and they had the privilege of being able to say they are God's people. Paul said in verse 15, for this reason, that is the reason of the faithfulness of the Ephesians, how they were converted to Christ, <clears throat> I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which is just among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of your, you in my prayers. What does he pray for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, they give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Well, we have all the revelation we need. It's in the scriptures. It's in the written word. But also, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us to believe far as I want to go with that. But <clears throat> did you know the exceeding greatness, the glory of his inheritance? All these, now look at all where this idea of inheritance and heritage comes all through here. Verse 5, he predestined us as adoption, as sons. When you are adopted into the family, you take the family's name. When a person becomes a Christian, he takes the name of Christ, the name of God. The name of the Holy Spirit baptized into the family of God the Father and the Holy Spirit takes on the name of the family. And also, because he's now in the family, makes him eligible for inheritance. Verse 7, we have for redemption, forgiveness of his sins. But then in verse 11, also we have attained inheritance. An inheritance. And then verse 14, the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of that inheritance. You know what that inheritance is? I'm going to show you. 
I can't believe it, so maybe I'm not looking at this right, and if, I, if there's another way to interpret this, please tell me. I've read this. When I first was converted, when I went to Florida State University for the two years after the junior college, Florida College, I read the New Testament through once a month for about two years. I read all these passages. I knew them there. But it wasn't until relatively recently that I, this connection, I guess maybe because of what I was taught, no, it can't be that, or something. Revelation 3.21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I tried to argue that it was just talking about the Christians in those days, but I couldn't find a coherent reason for arguing that way. I don't think they had it harder in those days than we've got it today. It's just a different kind of battle we're facing today. But he is honoring them by saying, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit on my throne. I cannot conceive sitting on the throne of God. Can you? But that's what it says. As the Father granted me to sit, as sure as the Father granted me to sit on His throne, I grant to those who overcome to sit on my throne. When we look at inheritance, we miss this, I think. Certainly, maybe in our preachings we do, and maybe because we don't understand, it's almost like it can't be that. And like I said, if it isn't, then please tell me. <laughs> but it looks like that to me. So in seen in that light, now listen, seen in that light, forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses, reconciliation to God, are a means to a greater end. It's not just we have the forgiveness of our sins, we are saved from our sins. That's only the beginning of the journey. He has for us the goal of allowing us to sit on his throne. I don't, I, would, I don't care. I mean, if I could be a doorkeeper, that'd be fine. Sweep the streets. I don't care. As long as I'm inside. I think Psalm 84. <laughs> One day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold and cavort with the sinners. All right. So let's look at our closing passages in, chapter, in Hebrews chapter 12. You in the classes have been known, have, have covered the, the giving of the law and how God came to, uh, to the people on a thick cloud. If you want to look at that in Matthew, uh, Deuteronomy, Exodus 19-20, it says, I'm doing this, I'm going to be coming down in a thick cloud so that they might believe in Moses forever and they might fear me forever and not sin. That fear was a means to an, a greater end, just like the forgiveness of sins is a means to a greater end. So we, here in verse 18 of Hebrews 12, have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which, was, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. God is so awesome, so fearful, 
and so demanding, we don't even want to go anywhere close to that mountain. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the, group, to the general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men, of the righteous made perfect. That term, church of the firstborn, is a singular. Church of the firstborn ones. God has still today separated out from the rest of the peoples whom he still loved. He loved us while we were sinners. In our sins, while we were enemies, he loved us. Yes, he does. But once we're reconciled, once we're in the covenant relationship with him, there's a different relationship. And that God views his people differently than he views the people of the world. We are a church of firstborn, an assembly of the firstborn one assembly, the new Jeshurun, which is predicted in the book of Isaiah, the new uprising. Well, now, what the question has to be is what motivates you? Are you going to allow yourself to go through life being afraid of things? Or the opposite of that, just ignoring everything? You know, you could, you could not, there are many people who don't even believe in Jesus who aren't afraid of death. It's not just that love of God casts out fear because their conscience is not trained to know God. So you can look the other way and say, well, I don't want to, the more I know about God, the worse it's going to be, so I'm not going to find out about him. But you won't find out about him the way we just did this morning either. See what I mean? God didn't bring us this far along only to destroy us. So if you want to join him, if you want to be in the covenant relationship with him, and you believe in the Lord, you believe in his, that he is the Son of God and are willing to stand with him and confess him, you can be baptized into Christ according to Romans 6 and Galatians 3.27, where we meet him, where God does the work of cleansing in our baptism. We don't do the work. It's not a work. It's an obedience of faith. And you can live forever with that knowledge. And if you've forgotten that, if you haven't done that, then remember from where you have fallen and do the things at the first. God does not want to destroy anybody. And you need to remember that as you go along. If you're subject to that invitation, we invite you to let it be known by coming forward.